Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Eat Local New York podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Tringale, and this week on the podcast, my guest is Bob Searing of the Onondaga Historical Association. Well, I'm thrilled to have Bob on the podcast today. Um, I've, I've been aware of Bob over the past few years, you know, with the work that I do with Willow Rock Brewing Company and the work they do with Congress Beer and the OHA. Um, you know, I, I've seen Bob and I've heard of Bob, and, and I think it was just this past year in 2023 that I really met him for the first time. Um, or at least met him long enough to like, you know, shake his hand and have a brief conversation with him. And, and I've run into him a bunch of times over this past year, walking around downtown or, um, it, it, you know, events or breweries or whatever the case is. And one thing that's always impressed me is his energy, his positive energy. Every time I run into him, I always feel better than I did before. And I feel inspired. And he's just a really, you know, to use a hippie term, he has a really positive energy about him. And I can't think of maybe a, you know, maybe diligence and, and intelligence, but uh, memorization. But what else? I mean, what better attribute of a person than the, you know, for someone to have than, than that, than, than the person that is preserving our history? of our city. You know, the person who's in charge of of telling this of, of telling the stories of our past and 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 keeping the history of Syracuse alive. What better attributes for a person to have? And so I'm thrilled to know Bob and I'm thrilled that someone like Bob is uh is part of Onondaga Historical Association and and, and continuing to tell the stories of our past. Um, we talk about in this podcast, the, the old mission restaurant and, you know, it's going to be soon when it opens up, I believe in the next, if not this month, then maybe next, um, Noble Cellar, which is opening up there. That's, that's owned by and, and being put together by Rob and Sarah. I've had the privilege to meet them, um, I think in December and, and go in and see, what they're doing with the restaurant, it's absolutely gorgeous. And the 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 time and the money and the attention that they're putting into this building is just wonderful. And it's great to see someone with the passion that they have that is keeping a building like that going, you know, because it, it, it sat empty and for sale for, I think, the last year or more. Um, so it's really exciting to see that. But I had heard that in the basement of that of this building – there, there were there was a tunnel or there was a, a holding place, whatever it, it was, um, that was used in the Underground Railroad. Because as we talk about here in the podcast, Syracuse was a pivotal uh, place uh, for the Underground Railroad. And so having heard that, I desperately wanted to get into this restaurant and in downstairs into the basement to experience this, this, this space the physical space. You know, I grew up as a Christian and, you know, I still am a Christian. And, um, you know, I just, be I, I, I believe that like th places where significant things as significant as, um, you know, helping to free people that are persecuted for the color of their skin, uh, that those places hold, you know, still hold significance. And, you know, there's something to kind of get from being there and from experiencing it and from like showing it, you know, reverence. And so I wanted really just wanted to get down there and and just kind of sit and, and you know, meditate for a moment. And so I got to go meet Rob and Sarah and I asked a favor as I was leaving. I was like, is there any way that I could go downstairs and, and just kind of experience it? And so Rob was incredibly kind it was like a, it was an incredibly rainy day and it was incredibly muddy down there, but Rob was was so kind to bring me down there and show me the space and and allow me that and you know that experience combined with this conversation with Bob leaves me feeling an incredible sense of responsibility to make sure that my time in Syracuse is that of significance. You know, looking back, I think of like, you know. All of these stories that 
we shared on the podcast and examples of, um, you know, we talk about salt manufacturing and or salt production and trade through Syracuse. We talk about the salt potato and, you know, we talk about this wonderful entrepreneur who is, you know, started her business and started her empire here in Syracuse and then went, you know, and, and the role that she played in our history. You know, I think back to those times and I think like, I, I bet that there were people working in salt fields or whatever it was, whatever you call them here in Syracuse back in the day, who probably didn't feel like they were doing anything significant. You know, they were just, they had a job. Um, right, they were they were producing salt and trying to to keep their family, you know, clothed and housed and fed. But how significant, looking back to you know a hundred years later, how significant those things were, that job was, that person's role, the salt production was to our area, and I don't know. I just think like. I love, I absolutely love the stories of um, restaurants here in Syracuse who have been in operation and in the same family for decades. I think of like Tassone's Wine Garden, you know, a restaurant that's now in its second, second or third generation of ownership, been there for over 30 years, still using, you know, their family recipes. Um, I think of places like Santangelo's, you know, Long-standing restaurant. I think of places like Possibilities, like how many, how much, um, how much change that restaurant has survived over the years. And Karen and Ryland and Rachel, who are continuing that story of of Possibilities. Um, I think of like Vince's Gourmet and you know um, Lombardi's. You know, I think of Lincourt Bakery. And these places that, you know, I know, you know, maybe they don't seem that significant today, but there's going to become a time in 100 years where these restaurants and these entrepreneurs and these families who who stuck it out and grinded through the good times and the bad times, um, how they're going to be such a large part of the story of Syracuse, of the history of Syracuse, you know. Um, anyways. I'm thrilled to have had Bob on the podcast, and talking with him makes me feel um, really responsible for the things that I do at Eat Local New York and how those can um, help shape the future of the city of Syracuse and its landscape and the restaurant industry, but also how I can help, you know, preserve these stories of these families who are running these restaurants and, uh, and you know, yeah. So, all right, enough of me talking. Um, but speaking of family businesses that have been run for multiple decades and, uh, who are doing really significant things here in the city of Syracuse, Brown Carbonic. Brown Carbonic is a family owned and operated company its history goes back, it's in its third generation right now. It's wild to think that working with a company like this is so significant. And I'm, you know, maybe I'm blowing it out of proportion. I don't think I am. But Brown Carbonic is a family-owned and operated business right here in Syracuse, New York, um, who operates all over central New York. And they provide such amazing services and products for uh, the food service and hospitality industry. I mean, they make their own soda. They make their own craft soda uh, that offers, that gives other local restaurants the opportunity to support a local business and still get their their carbonated beverages for their customers. Uh, you know, and and I've been talking this week. I'm going to throw this in there. I've been talking this week to um, a few different restaurant owners who use Coke and Pepsi because I've I was really curious. You know, it's like. They're a sponsor here on the podcast. I think it's incredibly cool that they make their own craft sodas and beverages that they sell to other restaurants. But I still run into, and I think it's also incredibly important that we buy local. 
But I still run into so many restaurant owners who also say that they believe in supporting local, but then they go and buy from Coke or Pepsi. It's the most asinine thing that I've seen. Uh, And so I was like, all right, well, maybe they're buying from Coke and Pepsi because it's so much cheaper. Guess what? It's not. As a matter of fact, the six restaurants that I talked to this week who buy from Coke and Pepsi pay almost 40% more with Coke and Pepsi than they would if they used Brown Carbonic, which is a local company which keeps more of the tax dollars here in our community. I just don't get it. Every time I start talking about this, I start going through this ad read, you know, for Brown Carbonic, the sponsor of our podcast, this wonderful local family-owned and operated company. Every time I do it, I get so angry thinking about people out there, restaurant owners, other local members of our community who aren't supporting local. It drives me crazy. Brown Carbonic, 315-454-3591. Buy local. Support local. I don't know why this is such an incredibly hard concept to get behind. So let's talk about it in dollars. You can get a better product, better service, support local, and save an incredible amount of money if you buy Challenger Cola from Brown Carbonic. Give them a call today, 315-454-3591. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Bob Searing from the Onondaga Historical Association. Bob Searing. Cheers. Thanks Cheers. Thanks for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me. I love yeah. it. Happy uh, Thursday. This is great. So, all right. Tell everybody what you do. Besides, oh, friend, that's a loaded question. Besides being um, a man about town, yeah, yeah, I'm a man, a man about town. I mean, what I do is, I mean, I'm a historian by trade. Uh, that's what brought me to Syracuse. I came here in '06 to go to the Maxwell School to work on my PhD in American history. Hmm. Um, never imagined that I would still be here. What is it now? 17 years later, um, fell into uh, sort of a happy accident. Uh, became curator of the Onondaga Historical Association. Hmm down there on Montgomery Street, uh, really as a result of a good friend of mine and a colleague at the Maxwell School, uh, Dr. Tom Geiler, who's now out at the Oneida Mansion House, sent me an email. I was adjuncting, and my wife and I had had our two kids. I'm hanging out trying to figure out what's next, and Mm You know, he sent me an email. He was down at Winterthur, and he's like, "Look, the OHA is looking for a curator. You mm-hmm. know, check it out." I'm like, "Well, I'm not a museum guy. You know, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a historian. I like, to, I'm a, I want to be a professor." And anyway, I sent an application in, and as it turns out, I hit it off well with Greg Tripoli, who's the now retired executive director of the OHA, and really, I think, helped resurrect the organization. And he and I hit it off. And actually, one of the things that really drew me to the role was during the job interview. He's like, "I've got this idea." You know. I didn't know anything about the brewing history of Syracuse. I didn't know anything about Syracuse. I was a, I was a noob. I was a transplant. And Greg's like talking to me about Congress beer. So here we are yeah. having this beer. Yeah. And I was like, look, man, I love history. I love beer. <laughs> I know some of the guys I had just met, Rock and Kev, through okay. friends of mine at the Carrier Dome. Jamie Wireless Dome, excuse me. Um, and uh, and so we start hitting off, and he hired me sort of on a flyer, and that's like six and a half years ago. That's wild. And in the meantime, you know, uh, we've built two museums, uh, one out mm. at Hancock International, the Regional Aviation History Museum. Uh, I've just finished the Bruseum two years ago uh, mm. with our uh, boys, uh, the Paladino Brothers and yeah. uh, Billy Smith, the Wunderkind <laughs> up there. Uh, and... Uh, and yeah, and Congress Beer, which we celebrated our fifth anniversary of bringing this thing back, and wow. the community uh, outreach and the community response has been amazing. Uh, and you get to drink beer for a good cause because mm. OHA gets uh, a little bit of the revenue thanks to the uh, oh, agreement great. we've got with uh, Kevin and Rock. So you know, like, so that's you know that, and I do all kinds of other stuff. I write a weekly column for the Post Standard and Syracuse.com. Um, I give constant lectures. I give walking tours. I'm still an adjunct professor. So hmm. you know, I'm I'm a busy man. I'm just yeah. trying to spread spread the word, spread the love, the that's history. Wild. So much to talk about just from that. My God, I know it's lots. So where are you? Where are you originally from? I grew up in the Triple Cities. I actually grew up in Vestal, New York, um, forever. My dad worked at IBM, uh, Mm -hmm. which, you know, was born there in Endicott. Mm -hmm. Um, My grandfather worked at IBM. Uh, My mom was an English teacher. Uh, Mm -hmm. My other grandfather was a history uh, teacher at Johnson City High School. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's sort of where my love of history uh, came from. Yeah. So you did your post-grad at SU? Yeah, I I came up here to go to grad school. Okay. Where did you do your undergrad? I did my undergrad at Pinkerton University. Okay. Um, After after several years of... 
um, being on fish tour and, and living like a general uh, bohemian <laughs> wild man, playing in rock and roll bands, and I finally decided, um, got my uh, my uh, wife sort of pulled me back to reality, and she's like, you know, you're <laughs> too smart to be just, uh, you know, smoking weed all day and listening to fish. I said, well, that's, you know, probably true, but so, uh, yeah, you know, got my act together and went back to school and figured I could do a lot, uh, I could do, I could still do some of those things and, and actually make a living, so that was, <laughs> so that was good. Um, and when, yeah, and then came here, uh, but I grew up a Syracuse fan, so you gotta remember, okay. like, yeah. like, I grew up, I'm I'm 42. I'm getting old. Uh, my kids won't let me forget it. But like, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, like yeah. the glory days for Syracuse sports. There, like, I remember watching Keith Smart mm-hmm. hit that dagger. You know, yeah. um, watching McPherson, like growing up with those guys, McNabb and, and Marvin Graves and Marvin Harrison. So when I finally mm-hmm. like got accepted to grad school at Syracuse in 06, it was a big, it was a big deal um, yeah. for me and for the fam. And I've got there's pictures of me when I'm like 10 and down in Vestal with just orange geared up and as i often say i think i was made for this gig because i'm like i'm sort of the de facto historian of syracuse even though um, oha is a private organization i've got hypertension and orange hair so it was i was made to be the historian for the salt city (laughs) i didn't know oha was a private organization we are yeah Uh, most people don't a lot of people think i've got some cush government gig and i can assure (laughs) you this is not the case um no we are we're celebrating actually uh this year 106 well no it's 2024 last year got it last year was our 160th anniversary as an organization so really tremendous um and like a lot of historical associations across the country oha started as a sort of a small private club for the elites in the Mm. community um and that really was the foundation of what now is a amazing collection that is housed in our uh you know sixty five thousand square foot museum over on montgomery Mm. street but yeah we're a private organization so we really do rely on the you know largesse of local businesses and partnerships like the one we have with willow rock or Mm -hmm. you know some of our great partners including our good friends at huber brewer and things like that like uh we and the Community Foundation. I mean, there's a lot of local mm. organizations that help fund organizations like ours, uh, and, and 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 we really, really need that, um, yeah. in addition to some government help. But no, OHA is a private 501c3. Wow. That's wild. I was As I was, like, driving around over the past week or past few days thinking about this podcast, and, and like I said, usually I don't come into any podcast with, like, I have an idea of, like, what I would talk to the person yeah. about. But uh, I don't write anything down. This was a little different. I tried to do a little research because I don't want to sound like an idiot. That's just be like, what's a salt potato? Um, <laughs> hence my shirt. Hence your shirt. Love it. Yeah. But as I was driving around, I was thinking to myself, what what happens when Bob's gone? Like, what happens if Bob moves on? Like, who's gonna who's going to protect the historical roots of Syracuse? Well, you know, there's lots of folks doing great work around here. I mean, when I came to Syracuse, one of the first people that I met was, you know, the indefatigable Michael John Haggerty, yeah. um, local legend, uh, empresario, who's doing amazing stuff. And Mike was working at Kitty Hoynes, which is where I spent a lot of time mm-hmm. um, my first couple of years up here. My wife, Katrina, and I would go there on the reg. And uh, Haggerty was one of those guys that sort of, and that was all sort of like pop culture stuff. Yeah. Um, but but Mike's great. I mean, obviously, our good buddy David Haas at Syracuse History. Yeah, David's doing amazing stuff. Um, and David David is doing stuff out in the digital realm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's really wonderful shining lights on yeah. us. Like the stuff that you're doing. I mean, and I think one of the things I try to do as a younger person who considers himself to be somewhat hip, to mm-hmm. use a word that's probably unhip now, <laughs> um, but is, is, is try to make history fun and accessible like mm-hmm. it's not you know like the ancient guy that taught it to you in high school <laughs> where you just had a drone on like Bueller Bueller you know so um and I think and I and, and there seems to be and I know you could probably attest to this too the people that are moving into this community like mm-hmm. people on Facebook uh, comment sections don't really grasp this, but there are lots of people moving into this community yeah. and young. And like, I've done a lot of projects, whether it was at the Deets building, for instance, or the Oak Knitting Mill, or I mean, mm-hmm. all, or, or the New Merrill Sewell stuff, like the apartments that young professionals are moving into the community, like they're interested in mm-hmm. this the past of this community with you're living in an old factory like we're in the Delavan right now like what went on here right like people from all over the world come here to build products that went back all over the world and this community in particular Hmm. per capita has probably some of the best stories and and some of the biggest manufacturers I think that there's a there's a real interest in that stuff yeah and so finding ways to make that accessible you know is what you know we're trying to do our team at the OHA but that's like I said like Hmm. folks like Haggerty folks like David Haas and Syracuse like we're all working towards the same goal you know what I mean I may be more of an academic about it um, at the end of the day because the organization that I work for and because of the way and more of sort of traditional channels but what's good you know I 
not not a fan of, of Ronald Reagan by any stretch of the imagination, but he used to talk about what a rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. And and I think right now what we're seeing in this community is there's so much positivity mm-hmm. um, amidst historic negativity because this area has been hit really hard in terms of job loss and population loss. But I, I, I've been here now long enough where I really see this inflection point, mm-hmm. and particularly downtown. There's a, there's a vitality. There's there's a youthful. There's a vigor, right? Yeah. Um, and one of the things as a historian that I think is just amazing is that you've got a real interest in 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 the stories. Like mm-hmm. my phone rings off the hook. I mm-hmm. can't. If I could clone myself, much like yourself, it's like we got to turn business away yeah. in some regard because there's just so much to do and there's so many people interested. I think that's great. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I do think that's good and. You know, being a, a little connected in like the real estate world and seeing um, how many people are moving to the area, how little availability of homes that there are in central New York right now is is incredibly eye opening. Having the food tour business this past summer, we only did maybe a dozen or so by the time we really got it up and running. Yeah. But the amount of people that were either, there was only one group I think I had that was from Syracuse. And like the 12 tours that we gave, the majority of them were people who had either just been transferred here for like kind of a bigger job um, or people that like chose Syracuse as their vacation destination in the middle of the summer. Well, well, and I mean, like, that's what's funny to me, because this is one of the things I love about my job at OHA is that I give tours to and meet people Mm -hmm. from every corner of the globe, whether it's because they're international graduate students at Syracuse University or whether it's because they moved here to work for Saab Census or SRC. Uh, and and they eat up, pun totally intended, yeah. I guess, um, <laughs> the history of this community. And so yeah. like when I, this last summer, I had the, I had the great um, experience of giving a series of walking tours downtown. Mm-hmm. We did, we did eight of them. They were all mm-hmm. sold out. And Literally, I think I had people from five continents, mm. various corporations that were, that were there that were interested and wanted to learn more about the community because they had yeah. chose to live here. And I think like we were the only upstate city that gained population in the 2020 census. Mm. There's a there's just there's a lot of there's a lot of great things going on. And again, yeah. there's people that want to learn more about the community. And like, yeah. I feel like if we can do it with food, we can do it with history. We can do it with the history of food, beer. All of it, like right. it's it's just it's it's just a it's a big win for the whole for the whole city. Yeah, I was uh, there's this book I read years ago called History Makers, and unfortunately, one of the co-authors of it now is it's a Christian book because I grew up in church. Uh, unfortunately, one of the co-authors has turned into like a Trump prophet. It's unfortunate. Yeah, um, and <clears throat> but the book that he wrote, I think I forget maybe the early 2000s. It was really interesting because it was him and this other pastor and. The one pastor had this like big like soup kettle, like iron soup kettle, that um, his family had been passed down from like generations to when his, you know, grandparents were like slaves in the South. Wow! And one of the interesting things about it is they used to obviously use it to cook in, but at night he said what they used to do because they weren't allowed to is they would turn the kettle upside down and like lift it up a little bit. And they would lay on their stomachs on the ground and like kind of with their mouths into the kettle and pray into it because they weren't allowed to like pray or worship or anything yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah. And oh. so, and he had had this kettle. And the interesting part is, him, these two pastors decided for some reason, I forget how the story goes, but they took it on this like national tour and they would go to like all of these like either significant like sites for like, you know, whatever, the Civil War sure. or, like, slavery. or And then they would, did this all moving west, and it was just kind of like it was, it was like, sort of like their, like, a I don't know, like a, a prayer, like spiritual forgiveness tour, essentially, okay. of, like, trying to, like, a you know... Atone. Spirit, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Atone for whatever, you know, all the uh, horrible the things. Whole, yeah, that, right, you know. the terror, the horror. And one of the interesting things that they said was that they, would, they had noticed moving from the East Coast, like, from the Northeast down and over to the West Coast, the difference in um, people's, like, uh, openness, acceptance, um, traditions, how, yeah. like, traditions would were completely grounded in the North, in the, in the East Coast, and not so much on the West Coast. And one of the reasons why they were talking, like, they mentioned was just, uh, was just time, yeah. you know. The East, we had, on the East side of the country, we had so much more time of, you know, Colonials, yeah, 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 for stuff, sure. You know, moving west, and I always thought that was really interesting. I've thought about that a lot uh, in in terms of food, uh, in terms of like why is it that so many different 
things pop up first on the West Coast and in New York City, but the West Coast, and then slowly trickle their way over, you know? Yeah, that's a fascinating subject matter. I mean, it's it's sort of reminiscent. We we actually were the first, talking about salt potatoes, like in terms of like regional things and foods that spring up. Um, uh, the Pomeroy Foundation, William G. Pomeroy Foundation, mm-hmm. who does a lot of the historical markers, we worked with them, and they have one of their sort of lines of that is a hungry for history marker. Mm-hmm. And so they want to get these plaques that are laying out the history of these various mm. regional and ethnic foods and how they popped up, which I think is, again, fascinating because yeah. one of the great windows into the past is through food, and that story is exactly that. Mm. Um, I, I what, what I worry about, unfortunately, though, is that that was the case, and there are still great regional variations, obviously, mm. but, like, you know, since the World War II, that sort of homogenization of American culture. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I were talking about this as we were driving back um, from New York City over the holiday. Like, basically, like, any town you're in now, for the most part, like, the main drag, it all looks the same. It's like everybody's mm-hmm. got a Buffalo Wild Wings. Everybody's right. got a fucking... Yeah, gas. I think we thought it's like so. The more that we can celebrate and maintain and carry those, especially oh, culinary yeah. traditions forward, I think um, is important because it's like if every place is the same spot, right? And then everyone's just going to eat it in TGI Fridays. Then right, the, what are we what are we talking about? You yeah, know? <laughs> for sure. Yeah, yeah. Coming back from like the Cincinnati area over the holidays. It's a commercial universe. I mean, everything is a chain. Yeah. You know, it's a yeah, it's a massive chain. And my brother who lives there with his family was saying, if a local place pops up, nobody really cares. If a massive chain pops up, it's like the talk of the town. Everybody is going crazy for it. Well, like, I remember, like, I mean, I remember when, and I don't know why, but I remember when the Golden Corral opened here. And, <laughs> yeah, like, right. I'm laughing my ass off. I'm like, it's like a... Upscale right. Ponderosa, which was yeah. shit to begin with. <laughs> People like couldn't wait to get in, and then COVID hit and it yeah, yeah. fucked it up. But I'm just like, I, one thing I, I do really find um, endearing about my time in Syracuse is that there really does seem to be a, a, a real love. Mm-hmm. And again, this goes to what you're talking about the, the tradition, the roots, right? The diaspora of people from this city is enormous, like yeah. right, especially with the population loss of the last thirty years. But but so you've got people like writing me emails about like a, an article I wrote about salt potatoes mm. from Europe, like mm. that they're living in their England now, but they, they grew up in Syria. people in California writing about wow. the salt potatoes and and like lamenting that they can't get them. And I always laugh and I write them back. I'm like, you can make them yourself. <laughs> it's just really salty water yeah. with with little potatoes. Um, but but like. So that that whole idea just it sort of it, we, there's a lot of love for local mm-hmm. here and obviously you know this you're living it you're on yeah. the vanguard of it and that's what gives a community identity mm-hmm. right the, the fish fryer I right. love the fish fryer it's yeah. right down the street from the museum if it was open for lunch every day I would go there every day yeah. right like you've got soups or salads right and I'm talking about places that are close three one seven right next door right? right these are awesome spots to eat locally owned locally sourced like and and, and we've got so many of them mm-hmm. and it's just it's a selling point like when i back to the point talking about earlier when you've got people coming in they just moved here yeah. right one of the things i do on the walking tours of downtown is and i always joke i'm like i'm not getting paid by any of these <laughs> by any of these people this is all because i love them is like oh yeah well that's the courier building and daniel webster gave this speech about treason and the fugitive slave act and mm. but it's also the home to mm. our great local coffee roaster recess <laughs> or this is fish fryer it's, you're going to get the best fresh seafood you can possibly get like and so that's part of mm. selling the Syracuse, right? That's part yeah. of acclimating people to the community. It's like mm. letting them know what happened here, you know, and this is a significant building, or this is, you know, or as I often joke, like that's a very significant parking lot because there used to be a great building there. But <laughs> but at the, at the same time, while you're here, you know, hit the spot, hit the spot, hit the spot. And mm. I just, the feedback that you get from people, yeah. A, they love it, and B, a lot of them will then come back to me and be like, thanks for the wreck, right? Yeah. Like, thanks for thanks for pointing it out because I might not have, you know, heard about it sooner or whatever. And, and, and like, again, mm. it's just one big happy family as far as I'm concerned in that stuff. Like oh, yeah. talk, being positive about what's going on, um, looking out for each other, you know, mm. selling, selling, selling for everybody, right? Yeah. Uh, and to, to quote the great Glenn Gary Garand, always be closing, <laughs> right? Always be closing. I think I may have, I may have lost part of my, uh, maybe my Syracuse card, my membership card, because, you know, as much as I love Syracuse, I also am a more of a fan of other areas' food scenes. Sure, uh, Syracuse. I think I think hope is. I hopefully hopefully is changing. There's um, 
you know, nobody's opened up, which is great. You know, we lost a couple of greats. But, we did. You know, we did. Uh, but nobody's opened up, and um, Zach and I forget. No, Rob and I forget her name. It's I'm blanking now. I feel so terrible for forgetting her name. Her opened up the old mission. Um, oh, Sarah Pellegrini. Sarah, yes, yes yeah, you. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna we're hopefully we're hoping to do a little installation there based oh, on cool. the obviously tremendous history of that building yeah. is the center of the Underground Railroad. So when I heard that, I asked, and it took me a while to finally be able to do it, but. Um, Rob took me down in the basement and let me see and like take me back there and yeah, you know tight squeeze yeah. When I heard about it, I was just like, I just want to go there. Like I'm a big believer in there's like there's something in the walls. Oh yeah, you know. Oh, and yeah. um, if I could, uh, if I could like get the, if I could get into a space like that and just kind of sit there and absorb it and you know meditate or whatever the hell. Oh brother, that's, um, yeah. There's there, you can feel the ghosts. You feel the history. Yeah, it's there's, crazy. There's no. There's nothing. There's nothing like it. Yeah. So for everybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, so underneath the old Mission restaurant, which I don't know, and the Mission was there for years. Long time. Yeah. But um, underneath the old Mission restaurant, uh, well, first of all, the building's a church, for those of you listening from Syracuse. It's an old church. It was this restaurant called the Mission for like 20 or 30 years. It closed during COVID and became Luna Loca for like a year and then it closed, and then now it's going to be this other restaurant. But in the basement of the restaurant, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, my extent of it is that it was used as part of the Underground Railroad system in Syracuse. Yeah, so the church was built by the Wesleyan Methodists, who were uh, sort of a radical uh, sect of the Methodist church who believed in radical things like racial and gender equality, <laughs> which was radical in the 1840s. Um, and they built a church that was a multiracial congregation, and they put it up in 1845, which mm. is really... The, the the midpoint um, of the Underground Railroad uh, ascension in Syracuse. And Syracuse was one of the major centers of Underground Railroad activity anywhere um, in the Northeast. In fact, mm. it was known as the Grand Central Depot of the Underground Railroad. Mm. And Jermaine Logan, who was a, a bishop in the African, Meth- Episco- Meth- African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, was was the station master here, sort of mm. Syracuse's um, counterpart to, to uh, Frederick Douglass in Rochester. But mm. members of that church were active on the railroad, either mm in housing freedom seekers or helping to fund freedom seekers hmm. and there is a this old sort of basement that was carved out and and Syracuse as i often say w- was a swamp uh, until they built the Erie Canal in 1820 so hmm. the water table here is really high and hmm. that clay if you've ever tried to garden in this area you know it's not hmm. the best it's really clay but so that soil lent itself to sort of carving out and then in the 90s they were doing excavations as part of the mission's expansion and what they found down there were a series of actual carvings um like like basically and Garth Johnson our good my good buddy uh, who's the curator over at the Everson um it, you know, even sometimes looks to think of them as ceramic because it is mm. like this clay that was formed into the walls of this area. Now, we can't say with any definitive proof that they were made by freedom seekers before 1860 when the Civil War um, basically begins. Um, but there was some archaeological work done by some professors at Syracuse University that says they were there before 1880 at least. So mm. we actually have some of these on display at the OHA mm. that you can see. Um, and then we were, like I said earlier, we are talking about, um, I think they're going to call it um, the Noble Cellar, I yeah, think was, is right. the name, which I love, um, is to actually either make a model casting of one of the faces mm. with a little bit of an interpretive panel there above the bar so that people really understand um, the power of the space that they're in, to your point earlier, to yeah. know and and beyond the Underground Railroad activity, um, that was the site in 1864, in uh, October of 1864, just a few weeks before the most consequential presidential election in this country's history until the one I think we're about to have in November, <laughs> um, when when the fate of 4 million enslaved people in America were on, were on the ballot. Um, and it wasn't sure if Lincoln was going to beat McClellan. And there is a gathering in that church uh, called the National Colored Men's Convention. Mm. Um, and it's the first time that this group meets in nine years. It is the mm. largest, most impressive gathering of African-American leaders in American history up to that point. Wow. Um, um, pres- president of the convention is named Frederick Douglass, and then they will actually meet. About 170 delegates from 17 states meet there. They have public meetings in the Whiting Opera House, which is down on Clinton Square, where the atrium is now. Um, and so this is, this is where they create the National League World Rights League, which becomes the f- preeminent uh, civil rights organization until the NAACP. So this happens in that building, in this community. So um, so again, so any chance to, this is where we get people coming in for the wine bar, right? Yeah. And then they see the face and they see the the history and it just mm-hmm. adds another layer of depth to the experience. Yeah. 
it's wild to think Syracuse and the significance it played so long ago. I mean, uh, even going like you know further back, right into just like salt production and and you know distribution all across the yeah. country and the world. But I mean, even things like that to think that there was such a significant thing happening in this city as, you know, trying to move, you know, these enslaved people up to Canada, I'm assuming, right? Yep, yep, to, yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then the significant change, you know, the, you know, the, the, the drastic changes over time. Yeah, you know, and I think that, you know, the Syracuse's central location is critical to that. I mean, it's one of the reasons, I mean, we're still, we're really the hub of a transportation network, mm -hmm. whether it's the railroads, whether it's the interstate system, as we're all going to now live through 10 years of the construction of 81 again. Um, but even before that, right, I mean, you go all the way back to the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, you're, we're in the capital of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy here at Onondaga. Mm -hmm. um, so this community long before it was colonized even, right, is is a center of economics. It's a center of social and political activity. It's a place where people come together. And a lot of that stuff is is, is over food. But that transportation network um, allowed Syracuse to really reach out nationally, whether, you know, and, and the Underground Railroad is a great example of, of its geography making it a, a place where freedom seekers were able to get to Lake Ontario very quickly because you had the Erie Canal running right through the heart of the city and you had the Oswego Canal running right up to Lake Ontario. And those same canals then transported salt, which, you know, the vast majority of the salt in the United States until the 1860s came from 600 acres around Onondaga Lake. And it was, wow. it's amazing. I mean, you got your Syracuse Salt Company hat on, yeah. you know, uh, they are doing amazing work and that salt is Bomb! It's yeah. fantastic, especially for finishing salt. So they're, they're sort of bringing it back. I mean, it's been a hundred years since the salt industry, um, you know, died in this community. So the fact that they're over there doing their thing, and I, I mean, and it's getting traction. I know with with some big chefs. So, um, but yeah, it, the the outstripped sort of influence of this community. Um, you know, and it's not just salt potatoes, but just in everything that they made here, um, really is one of the things that as a as a transplant, I've grown to be. Um, I'm continually amazed mm -hmm. by it, right? Uh, and at one point, and this people's heads explode sometimes when I say this, Syracuse was one of the 25 largest cities in the country at the turn of the 20th century. It's wild. It is wild. I mean, we're like 187th now. but yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is a community. And as usual, it's a place like America. It's a microcosm. We have people from everywhere, mm -hmm. which is why, I mean, you still, you can get food from Oh, yeah. Every part of the globe in this in this city. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. it's it's is it uh, is it New York, <laughs> Chicago? No, of course not. But right. but it's but it is considering what most people I think think about mm -hmm. the city from maybe outside. Um, I think the reality is is drastically different and much better. I would say. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's still you know like uh, you know my uh, sister who's. Significantly older than I am, uh, even though she's never going to listen to this. So that joke's <laughs> not going to hit. Great, um, great family support. Yeah. Uh, now, my sister is ten years older than I am, um, who lived here for maybe six months at one point in her life. She was home, I think, two Christmases ago or two Thanksgivings ago, and we I took her to Oh My Darling. Oh, and, great spot! And walking in there, she was like, "This isn't Syracuse. We're not <laughs> Syracuse. This is this isn't Syracuse." It's like, yeah, it's been here for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, it really is. You know, Syracuse were the things that give me a lot of hope right now in our food industry is places like Beeria Casa Tacos. You know, oh, she's like dude. illegally doing it out of her kitchen, and oh. then you know the test kitchen. Now she's got her be open up her own spot. That's spectacular, and they're the best. They're tacos. phenomenal. Yeah, they are. They're they're ridiculously good. Well, and then Salt City Market, right? Yeah. Like, or 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 Habib's. I mean, like, there's so much of that story. Um, here and and for me, it's a continuation of that. I mean, it's a cliche, but that that's that they the Germans and the Irish did it in the eighteen fifties, right? right? And now people from from various locales are doing it again, and we get to be the beneficiaries of of their their hard work and their labor. And now yeah. I want birria tacos, yeah, and like they they are they're fantastic yeah they're great uh, and i'm also thinking about that fantastic elevator in in uh, oh my darling down in yeah Fritz, down in the fits there amazing yeah. amazing amazing local history in a great building yeah great stuff all right so what can you tell me as i let you take your drink this is the this is the only downside about doing the podcast is i always drink twice as much as the guest no downside <laughs> all right so what can you tell me about syracuse style pizza oh god i don't can i tell you i mean I would say that that has to be the uh, is that the Twin Trees pizza I would yes, imagine I yeah. mean that's so yeah this I, is I, my gotcha gotcha journalism I mean I think that's <laughs> I think that's it I mean it's a little 
I mean, I love pizza. I, I, I'm a bit of a pizziolo myself. Okay. I would use that term. Yeah. Uh, the wife got me, the wife and kids got me an uni a couple years ago, and oh, I've been nice. I've been fucking around with dough yeah. for a minute now. So I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm damn good. I, I'm almost, <laughs> I'm not a pizza regional, but I'm, but I'm damn good. But uh, Syracuse pizza is Twin Trees, and I think yeah. I had Twin Trees for the first time when I moved here in like 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife's old boss at ESF grew up on the north side, and he okay. just. Twin Trees was it. Yeah. And so we went to Twin Trees. And I got to say, I loved it. I mean, it was good. It was a little thicker. They yeah. cut it funny. Yeah. Um, like bocce. I lived in Buffalo for a while. And bocce in Buffalo okay. yes. also cuts it like that. Yeah. So I don't know if that's like a, a yeah. particular thing from like where you were from in Italy or right. what, if that is, if it's like Sicilian or what. Uh, but anyway. It, I don't think that has anything to do with Italy. But they, I they, yes. they just they just cut it <laughs> yeah, that no. way. I don't know. I don't yeah. I Sometimes I'll cut my pizza like that at home. But it's good. It's like it's doughy and it's cheesy. It's kind of greasy. Yeah. Not as greasy as Varsity, yeah. which is too right. greasy for me. I mean, that, somebody, I might get thrown vegetables at me on the street or whatever but um yeah, it, yeah. I, I mean I, I don't know it's it's uh, it's like it's not sicilian but it's not right. but it's not new york i don't know from for my money best pizza in this community that I, that isn't a pizza regional because that's my favorite yeah is mario and salvos and yeah and, for sure. and i we crush mario and salvos at my house at least once a week i would eat it every day if i could yeah yeah that's the thing about pizza in general and i think in especially in syracuse people want to say like who has the best and for me it's like all right, I've decided I want pizza. Now, what style of pizza? Right. Do I want a Detroit? Do I want a Neapolitan? Or do I have to go see if Viennapoli's open? You know, if it's that's cold. Good shit too. Right. Do I want Mario and Salvos? Do I want a you know Syracuse cut? Like it's not just like <laughs> I want pizza. That will do. It's like no. I want pizza. What style? Yeah. The it's so the it's Shuffles Pizza. It was a, a West Side pizzeria, which was like the start of Twin Trees essentially. Like, oh, okay. Shuffles existed, and then. Twin Trees, I believe the story is Twin Trees, like, spun out of that. Shuffles is, like, basically the same thickness, the same cut. Yeah, it's a little breadier. It's not a Sicilian where it's really thick and bready, but it's also not a New York style where it's, like, thin. It's cut in strips. Strips. Which is odd for sure. Strips. Um, I've never seen – there's a place, there's a chain in – I I think they're all over, like, the Midwest and the South, but um, it's called Donato's. And it's, like, really thin – Really, really thin. Not like cracker thin, but really thin. Like and then it's just covered from edge to edge with pepperoni. Okay. And uh, But theirs is cut in strips similar to Twin Trees. Um, but anyway, so that's that. And then, but the sh- that's really the extent of a Syracuse-style pizza today. It's it's that thickness of a oh. crust that's cut in strips. It's the strips. Pizza strips. Shuffles pizza from back in the day was... When are we talking back in the day? 60s? Because uh, Twin Trees been around a long time. Yeah, I think it was around that time. Okay. Like, my dad, I think, grew up eating Shuffles, okay. and he grew up... We, You know, I, we lived, too, in Westvale. I love the name. Yeah. And, um, uh, and but I th- there was something different about his cheese. I think he used, like, Lucatelli or something. He, okay. he used a different style of cheese on it than just mozzarella. Um, I've the the rumor on the street is that Charlie Roman at Daniela's has is the only person in existence with the shuffles recipe. Does he make it? I've been told that he does make it at the restaurant, but it's not on their menu. You gotta ask for it. You gotta know yeah, the guy. I was gonna go in there and try Dude. it. Syracuse.com covered a story on it maybe like 15 years ago. Oh, Charlie's got to get up there and do it again, dude. Yeah. Interviewed uh, with like the family of Shuffles, you know, the original owner and stuff. See, now this is what I love this. Now now I'm going to go dig on Shuffles, and I yeah. think maybe I'll have to write a column on it at some point. You're, now you've got me thinking about pizza, which it, is I'm, is always on my mind. It'll um, be fun. Is we should do like a video series where we take a different food item. Yeah, Syracuse, and do like the history of it and like the modern. I'm all about that. That'd be cool. That would be great. I think that's a great idea. There's a there's a spot in in uh, you asked me where I grew up at the beginning. uh, There's a spot in Johnson City Mm -hmm. called Brosetti's. Okay, and Brosetti's does little like it's like cafeteria tray size pizza. Okay, but it's square and they cut it, and it's also it's it's like you're talking about the difference. It's like I don't know if it's American, but it's not. It's not mozzarella. Mozzarella, Hmm. and the bread the crust has like a little sweetness to it hmm. i've never had pizza like it anywhere in the world hmm. anywhere in the world next time you're passing through go hit up brosetti's yeah. and, and snag it it's it's 
it's it's like and get make, get a white garlic and get a, and get a plain cheese. Is it Z, Brosetti's with a Brosetti's Z? with double Z? The and double. they had the best jingle. It when growing up, if you grew up in Binghamton and you hear the seven nine seven nine nine six zero, call Brosetti's <laughs> for a pizza to go. I still sing it constantly. I don't think so. Yeah. It's it's legendary. So get it. You'll love okay. it. I'll have to check it out. Have you ever had Oskanitz in Utica? No, I need to go. People keep telling me to go to Utica. Yeah. To eat. It's I, good. It's like it's the second oldest pizzeria in the country. Yeah, I'm all. Is it like is it like New Haven style? No, it's a pizza. Um, no, it's like it's a round pie. It's a little. It's not thick, but it's a little thick, and it's an upside down pie. So it's like mozzarella, sliced mozzarella down first. Okay. Sauce on top. They put like a pecorino or something okay. on top, um, and it's not bad. It's not something that, like if I'm gonna like if it's a Friday night or a Sunday and I'm watching football, I don't want to eat an Oskin eats pizza. Um, but it's really great just to go in there just for the fact that it's the second oldest yeah. pizzeria in the country. Well, we'll see, that's why I have to go there. That's why I have to go to places like this. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Um, yeah, making pizza is, it's... Uh, it's You're doing it. I, I see you on yeah. Facebook. You're doing the yeah, Detroit man. style. It looks yeah. damn good. Yeah, thanks. I uh, I got into pizza. That was like my, one of my COVID things. We got chickens. Mm-hmm. We I got into pizza. <laughs> I got into sourdough. Oh, yeah, we yeah. live on the north side, so I had chickens in the backyard in the north side. That's so old timey. That's yeah. great. <laughs> and um, and so that was that was all fun. And you know, I was I was really getting into pizza. And then I wanted to start to get back, and it just it's so expensive to go out to eat nowadays. I know it's ridiculous. Um, and so especially if you have kids. Oh yeah, okay. I mean yeah, our son eats. You know, it, we're, he's at the point. He's fourteen months yesterday, so <laughs> he's at the point where now like he eats what we eat, but obviously not the same Much amount. Less. Um, <laughs> although he can put food down. <laughs> The kid is. I would expect nothing less. Yeah, he is gonna be. It's <laughs> gonna be. Hopefully, my wife made the comment. We were talking uh, about like like you know athletics as he gets older, and uh, she you know she made the comment. Well, if he's anything like us, he's probably not gonna be very athletic. And um, although I did play football in high school, anyways, having said that, <laughs> uh, um, I was like, uh, and it was completely off topic. But I was just thinking to myself, yeah, but I think we could like mold him into if we wanted him to be like a football player, we yeah, could be like, sure, you're going, you know, yeah, you could go all Earl Woods on yeah. him and just make him do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, don't uh, do that. But no, yeah. we won't do that. No. Yeah, I forget how we got on the topic uh, pizza. from pizza. Pizza will take that. you anywhere. Oh, so I wanted to get into pizza again. Take it's yeah. too expensive. It's like we went, we got. I won't name the place, but we got wings and a large two-topping pizza. It was sixty dollars. That's outrageous. So I was like, I'm going to make it at home. We have a small kitchen. I know if I started putting flour on the countertop and stretching the dough, she'd shoot me. So I was like, Detroit style. It's contained. I don't have to do it. pretty much goes from like the mix when you mix your dough to the fridge and then to your pan and you're done. It's not a big mess. I've never I've never tried Detroit style. I'm going to have to. It's it's actually incredibly easy. Okay. The the from I've only done it like a handful of times now, but from what I've learned the the magic happens in how long you let it proof in the pan. Yeah, what's what have you what are you finding to be the magic number? All day long. All day long. All day long. Are we talking out out of the fridge? Yeah. So I do a temperature proof. Yeah. Okay. I go, I mix it, I do a two hour slap and fold yeah. into the fridge for two days. And then the morning of when I leave the house at seven, it goes into the pan with oil and then I cover it in saran wrap. When I come home at the end of the day, it has risen all the way to the top of the pan and filled out perfectly and then i par bake it okay that that locks it all how long uh like four to four to six minutes depending all right um you know the the challenge is it with detroit style if you add all your toppings on at first and bake it raw you the dough collapses under the weight oh god i imagine it would pool and be a mess and so so then you wind up getting like it just shrinks down so if you put some oil on the top, like a healthy amount of oil, and then par bake it, and then pull it out, and then do the rest. So I par bake it with a little bit of cheese and a little bit of oil, and then pull it out, and then add everything else, and it's it's Dude, great. I'm I'm going. To, yeah, I'm going to a pizza region all as soon as I leave this <laughs> podcast. I went to OIP. This is uh, outrageous. On my way here, drinking so. <laughs> beer and not eating pizza. I'm I'm, I'm having DTS. <laughs> Um, all right, so uh, you know, looking at my, I was in doing my history. Obviously, salt potatoes. I mean, <coughs> salt potatoes. The history of that is essentially the salt workers were boiling potatoes for lunch, right? Yeah, I mean, the history of it is, you know, is poor Irish salt boilers. And, and what I love about this story, though, is that I, we, I, I would like to think that I actually found the guy that invented them. Um, 
we did this thing for the Pomeroy Foundation mm. and dug into the history and with the magic of Google search, you can sort of find and pinpoint like the first time phrase was used, mm. found salt potato, and then went and dug in the archives of the UHA, which are mm. amazing. Many thanks to uh, the late, great Dick and Carolyn Wright for all their fastidious mm. work in the 50s and 60s. I've been amazed what you'll find. And sure mm. enough, found this little newspaper clipping of the Keefe brothers who had a tavern on Wolf Street, mm. and the building is still there. Um, it's actually a tradition uh, builders or something. It's mm. right next. There's a strip club right next to the building, which only comes into the story because when we did the Hungry for History marker and I told the Pomeroy Foundation that we've got it. I found the Keefe brothers and they opened a saloon in the 1880s and I found their father and his name was Arthur and he came over from Ireland in 1839 mm. and I found him in the 1840 census and he's a salt boiler and I'm like freaking out because I'm a nerd and I love this stuff. And um, and I like we, so we could put it like in the store where they serve wow. the serve salt potatoes, and you could still. And and I said, but caveat: there's a gentleman's club right next door, and 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 Darren Palmer, who's fantastic, she's like, no, I don't think that's gonna work. I said, all right, so we said we put it in front of the salt museum, which is yeah, probably yeah, a better yeah. frame. But but yeah, so so we found, and basically it's like, look, they were poor, they had potatoes, and the reason salt potatoes are so damn good is you people making them with these giant potatoes, it doesn't work. You got to get the little nubbers, like the ones that weren't good enough, right? right? You take them, you throw them in all day, and the salinity, as our friends of the Syracuse Salt Company could tell you, the salinity of Syracuse salt is, I think, higher than mm. the actual ocean, right? It's crazy wow. salty. So these things, just threw them in, pull them out, they're eating them, they threw mm. butter all over them, and they're just drinking them. Yeah. And so the Keefe brothers, James and Arthur, right, they realize growing up in a house of a salt boiler, like people eat these shits. Mm. The margins are crazy good, right? Yeah. Potatoes are cheap. And so in the 1880s, they're getting a little older. They'd worked in the salt industry, you know, after they got out of school and they opened this tavern on Wool Street. And the only thing they served there is it's next to their grocery store mm. is beer and salt potatoes, really? which someone needs to do that in Syracuse. Listen up, folks. <laughs> um, so beer and salt potatoes. And, and, and they operate it for several decades mm. and it's a spot and from that spot on wool street the salt potato grows out the diaspora it goes up the north up north side to hinterwaddles who are you know the germans yeah. up there at the clam bar right up the road and they really then make their, their the grove mm. as it was known which i think just closed a few years ago yeah. but that's the famous white bag that's wild which is there so like that and again so like every time you eat a salt potato like there's that the history of the immigrants and the ingenuity you know, of this, what is really a very basic thing. But yeah. my God, they're they're right. delicious. And they make the best fucking home fries in the yeah. world if you don't eat yeah. them all at the barbecue. Right. Whoa! Yeah. I feel that, that reminds me of, I think it was uh, one of the first pizzerias in New York City. They used to, the, the uh, factory workers used to grab it on their way into the factory in the morning, wrapped in a brown paper bag with string, and then put it on the you know heater or boiler yeah, yeah. or whatever and warm it back up. That's wild. Um, We've got a great old radiator in the collection at the OHA. They used to have the bread warmers and the radiators for the apartments in the city. Oh, really? Oh, it's spectacular. Yeah. There are probably still some. I'm sure David Haas has put one of them on uh, the yeah. Syracuse history somewhere. Huh. We should get uh, Willow Rock to do a salt potato in Congress only. Like, that's the only beer that they serve one night. That would be great. We served salt potatoes when we had the salt potato party there when we did the Pomeroy marker. Yeah. And so we had salt potatoes, and they do go really well with, uh, like, with brunch. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good. Yeah, I'll have to text Kevin Rockney after I'm just Rockney. Yeah, that's pretty. So that's they're why, the best. Yeah. So when did the salt uh, industry cease to exist in Syracuse? It was basically done by 1921. Okay. Right, and in the in the span of the hundred years, I mean, there there really is no, and I say this you know all the time, there is no Erie Canal, there is no you know Syracuse without salt. You mm. know, Geddes, James Geddes, who is the man who surveys the canal route twice in 1808 and 1810, uh, Josh Foreman, who maybe is rightly called Mr. Syracuse. These guys are aware of the economic potentialities of mm. the salt market here um, and is one of the things that drives them to call for the legislation that creates the canal. Mm. Um, somewhere in the area of 40% of the original costs were actually helped to be paid with tax on Onondaga salt. Mm. Um, and then that helps grow the entire economy around that. And then it's it, we think about salt as like a seasoning, right? But you've got, before refrigeration, 
You yeah. needed salt. It was absolutely essential to life. Um, transporting, storing food, you needed salt. And, mm. and so you needed a lot of it. And so you had, when they, when, when the Haudenosaunee were here before the white people came in and colonized the place, they didn't really hang out much around where we are in Syracuse because it was essentially a marsh and there was salt mm. everywhere. So when they showed Lemoyne the salt in 1654, he's like, hmm. You know, mm. thinking money, 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 but it isn't really for another 150 years. That, but those first settlers come. Geddes is one of them with basically like copper kettles, and they boil salt around the lake, and that grows into an industry that dominates the national market, um, basically for 100 years from like in 1820s right up to 1920, 1921. And in the meantime, what the money and the and the investment that grows up around the salt industry creates all the other wealth that's that's here. So that mm. white gold. Is the foundation of everything from, uh, you know, uh, Kraus Heinz Electrical or mm. the Franklin Automobile or Syracuse University, mm. you know, is all in part funded because of the money made in the salt industry. I mean, George Comstock made a bunch of money in the salt business. Mm. Um, and he's, of course, the guy that gives the land to Syracuse University and um, Comstock Street is, of course, named after him. So, so mm. salt is central to the central city. That's wild. That's, yeah, that's crazy. So, um, when what year was Syracuse founded? As a village in 1825. 1825, okay. And incorporated as a city in 1847. Yeah. It's it's a wonder that no one prior to, like, prior to, um, you know, the Syracuse Salt Company have, has tried to do anything with that. It is. And you wonder, I mean, I, I wonder why. And I also, I mean, I've never actually asked David this, but what the inspiration for, like, what got him back into doing it. Yeah. Um. Especially because, I mean, we love his product. We partnered with them to do uh, – we've got this great program that OHA runs with Syracuse Salt Company and the Syracuse City School District, bringing fourth graders to the oh, Salt yeah. Company Works where they can sort of see the process. And then we take them to the Salt Museum, and they learn about the industry. They learn about the history. And then they actually make their own evaporative salt mm. in, in their classroom. So, That's cool. Um, it's, which, is, which is cool. So you're bringing, again, history and food and all together. But I, I, I don't know why. I, you yeah. know, it's one of those things where salt is, is an afterthought. Right, yeah. Part of it, I think, maybe, too, Andy, is that with the rise of the foodie scene, like, mm -hmm. I mean, we're both we're yeah. both foodie. Like, the quality product matters. And, like, you know, you could get the sea salt from the coasts of, you know, Greece or Italy, you know, which is where we sort of take our name from, Syracuse. But, um, but you know, here in the States, it's, 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 a, it's a throwback. It's an artisanal product. And it's really, really, it's really good. So I don't know, yeah. you know, I think that might have sort of played a part in it. There was a market for it because they've been around now, I mean, what, six, seven years, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and, and it just seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But yeah. I'm, I'm glad they did because, like I said, not only is it a great product to use, but it's, it's a great branding thing for the city. And as it continues to sort of grow and get picked up by actual chefs and restaurants, I think it's one of these things that... I mean, we're not going to back to 600 acres and right. 5 million bushels a year like they were in the 1860s, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, any any little bit helps. Yeah, for sure. And it's freaking delicious. Yeah, it, it's really great salt. I think they do – I know they do a lot outside of Syracuse. Um, definitely need to get more restaurants uh, aware in Syracuse of Syracuse salt yes. and using it. Yes, yes, um, yes. So – uh, for time's sake, I'm going to skip talking about Congress because we already touched on we, it. We touched bit. it. But uh, go buy it. Drink for a good cause. Yeah. What can you tell me about Mary Elizabeth Evans Sharp? Mary Elizabeth Evans Sharp, my gosh. Uh, she was one of Greg Tripoli's favorite people. So Mary Elizabeth is. Uh, is one of the great female entrepreneurs uh, of the 20th century, um, really of all time. She uh, In the community, she starts making her own chocolates uh, in her home. Um, and from this humble beginning, she starts selling them originally. She's selling them out of a little case made by the great Gustav Stickley, in fact, mm. in the old university building um, over on uh, Washington or Warren. Uh, my geography is failing me. Um, and so she – and she starts and, – and it – becomes a thing and and people are like my god this young girl is making these amazing chocolates mm. and from this thing i mean it's sort of like a it's a tale you'd hear today like like a tiktok sensation <laughs> all of a sudden then builds this into this um juggernaut uh, yeah. of of a company and then during world war 1 she's making ch chocolates for the war effort and and eventually marries uh marries a, a wealthy industrialist out of providence and that's where a lot of the family papers are but she 
builds a, a fortune of millions of dollars, uh, you know, and from this very small, like I said, as a teenager making chocolates in her in her um, in her in her house, I was just actually telling that story to my daughter, uh, who mm. Julia, who's eleven, who loves to bake and loves mm. to do that stuff. So I was telling her about Mary Elizabeth, um, and then we a couple of years ago before the pandemic started, we actually sort of resurrected her donut recipe, which was apparently very popular as well. Really, she made so we have the cruller recipe. Yeah. And we worked with Polly um, at Glazing and Fuse, and mm. they put together this quote. And it was very, very good. And then COVID hit, and it all sort of went sideways. But um, but she was a gifted confectionery, um, a gifted marketer, uh, and just a tremendous entrepreneur. Mm. Again, all right here in Syracuse. It is. It's, it's, it's an incredible story. Yeah. That'd be really cool to see, like, some sort of a pop-up. I mean, uh, of somebody who just, like, focused in on those foods that were made famous, you know, from here in Syracuse or, you know, from people like stuff like that. It, well, you know, for a while, um, actually, and I'm, God, this is, there was, there was a chocolate shop in Manlius. Oh, this a chocolatier. One, right? yeah. Yep. And, but when I got on board at OHA back in 2017, they were making several varieties of Mary Elizabeth's chocolates because really? we have the recipe. The family left all the stuff to the OHA. Wow. And they were making them. Um, I think it then, and then again, COVID hit, and I don't think that the chocolate shop made it. So, yeah. like now, you know, we've got. I love the place in Army Square, yeah. Sweet and Chocolate. That place is amazing. Um, and I, I think maybe we thought about approaching them to sort of bring yeah. a couple of these flavors back. Um, but it's fun because it's like you also see when you like look back at like old menus or you look back at old cookbooks, like the changes in taste and like yeah. what people were into, <laughs> like the flavor combinations. Some of them are tremendous, and I had a few of the candies are great, but some of them are like. <laughs> I love this part of her story that during the war effort with rationing that instead of like just being terrified that chocolate was going to be one of those things instead she came up with this list of recipes for popular you know meals whatever they were dishes and the recipes were all using non-rationed alternatives yeah again just showing her ingenuity right and her ability to break things down yeah. and, and the way her mind worked to be so intelligent and to be able to first and then make the recipes so that they were accessible and and to disseminate mm -hmm. them to be thinking that far ahead um yeah i mean and, and that is vital to the war effort in terms of keeping you know support for what was really sort of an unpopular war mm -hmm. this is the first world war because um, people didn't really know why they were fighting it and yeah. so you know it was a way to get some home support as well so she played an integral role you know in that in that effort yeah and we had we had an army base Right here at the fairgrounds, right. So I mean, she was dealing oh, right. firsthand with with uh, doughboys who came here to train. When when uh, when uh, Wilson asked for the declaration of war in April of 1917, as soon as Congress gives them a declaration, they immediately have to start to build an army because the United States doesn't have an army. It's not like we've got today. Yeah. And so one of the 32 bases that they actually build is at the fairgrounds, and the army comes in and takes it over and turns it into uh, Syracuse uh, Army Base, and mm -hmm. they train over 300,000 uh, GIs. That's wild. It's nuts. Yeah. And and they still had the fair the whole time. Really? Crazy. That's wild. Yeah. I was out at uh, the uh, Cavalry Club. Yeah, yeah. And they've got a, kind of a cool little setup out there showing some of the history from... When they moved out of the armory downtown. Yeah, yeah. it's wild. Great golf course. I can't afford to play it, but... <laughs> uh, I don't know if you know... <laughs> I, I can't... I, I don't, but I don't know if you know Eamon Lee at all. I don't. Eamon Lee is... if they, I always, I've said this a few times now. If there is a Mount Rushmore of... Um, Syracuse chefs, Eamon is definitely one of the four. Um, Why do I know his name? Eamon's been... Where's he at? He would, right now he's out there, but he's been everywhere. Um, not everywhere, like he's jumped around, but um, he was with Maine's for, a, I think, a bulk of his career. He was at the... Uh, what's the big... On the corner of towns on the big uh, private club? Oh, Century Club. Yeah, he was there for a oh, while. Yeah. Um, he's Back in the day, he was with Max at Lemongrass. Oh, good stuff. God, and, I love that place. Too. Um, you know, Firecracker Thai Kitchen. Don't know that joint. It's in the um, Salt City Market. Um, and Sarah is well, uh, the owner of it. Okay. Her first kitchen job ever was it was Bistro Elephant and Lemongrass, that the old space they oh, shared yeah, I the kitchen. That. She worked next to Eamon Lee and Jared from St. Urban. That was her first oh, ever kitchen God. job. Was working next to those two. That I'm, I'm, I'm depressed. Yeah. That that, that he left. Like, I, oh. we, my, my, my wife and I live in on Houston, right okay. in Westcott. Yeah. 
And that was one of those things. Like that was an out of body experience because you go in mm-hmm. and the meal is yeah. next level, major urban center food, and then you walk out and you're on Westcott Street. Right? <laughs> you're like, yeah. what the hell just yeah, happened? That's crazy. It's sad. I hope. I hope. I hope he does well. Yeah, I'm sure he'll do. I'm sure he'll do fine back in the city. And I think it's you know you know. I mean, I don't know Jared. The first time that we ever ate there, my wife and I, and he really like turned like he. We ordered, this is back before COVID, so back then you go in there and get like the three-course tasty yeah. menu for like 30 bucks, which is stupid, <laughs> and um, that you could go in there and get that level yeah, of a oh meal God. for so cheap. A steal. And I think they had sent out like two or three additional courses, and you know, one of the things that just, I mean, this is except for, aside from everything else that we experienced that night, one of the things that I really liked was like, as we were, as I was like walking to the front, he like had perfectly timed it. We're like, he met me right at the host station. Nice. He was like, how was everything? And I apologized to him. And I said, I'm so sorry that you just had to make that for me because I know that that was a wonderful, we had a once in a life sort of experience, but I have no idea what you just did. <laughs> it's just, <whew. laughs> I met Derek Trucks in that restaurant. I'll never forget oh, the wow. great Derek Trucks. And it did, it was, it was like, this meal couldn't be any better. Yeah. The seven course, it was Tuscany was the was the mm. tasting that month. And then and then Derek Trucks was there because they were playing Lafayette. And it was mm. just like I couldn't That's why I'm I'm gonna I'm, I'm retiring from eating <laughs> now. I can't get any better. That's awesome. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming down. And thank talking. you. This was fantastic. It. Yeah. Uh, so tell everybody how they can find out more information about the OHA, how they can show support, get involved. Thank you. Uh, well, you can follow us, obviously, on your sundried social media platforms, Instagram, uh, Facebook. I think we may be even TikTok at this point, cnyhistory.org on the good old-fashioned Internet. Please, as I said, we would love for you to become a member. It's an absolute bargain. Um, you can do that. Uh, you can find us at any one of the five museums, whether that's the Scandal Great Law Peace Center. Um, you've got the Veterans Memorial Museum in the uh, in the old War Memorial there. We've got the Bruseum at Heritage Hill. Please go there. Check that out. Regional Aviation History Museum, and then our good old spot, 321 Montgomery Street downtown. Um, I personally have never met a microphone or TV camera I didn't like, so you'll see my mug all over. Read my stuff, um, and uh, Syracuse.com, Post Standard, I've got a column that runs every Sunday. Uh, my colleagues uh, will contribute to CNY Business Journal, uh, CNY Good Life Magazine. We are also really excited. We've got a Smithsonian traveling exhibit that we were uh, selected to ho- host at the Scandal Great Law Peace Center on the history of voting and democracy, which we're going to actually put up in the spring of 2025 so we've got wow. a long way to build up for that so that's really exciting for the community as well and we're just always out you'll see us you'll see me out on the street you'll see us out any one of the buildings we do a lot of branding with restaurants so a lot of our pictures so we're we're all over but 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 please do we really welcome the support and uh i'm, I'm really grateful for you having me on Thanks, yeah man. thank you Well, there it is, everybody. Thank you so much to Bob for coming on the podcast today. Had a great time talking with him. Again, make sure that you get connected with the Onondaga Historical Association, cnyhistory.org. Also, big shout out to our sponsor for this week's podcast, Brown Carbonic. Reach them online at browncarbonic.com or give them a call at 315-454-3591. Thanks so much, everybody. We're going to catch you back here for another episode of the Eat Local New York podcast.